1: From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. This Saturday, the world's mushroom population will grow thanks to an international art scavenger hunt called Game of Shrooms. The game's design is sweet and simple, participating artists create mushroom-themed art to hide within their communities, and then local art lovers go looking for the hidden art. Later in the hour, City Lights senior producer Kim Drobe sits down with the artist Daniel Attaboy Seifert, creator of the event. Plus, Film Crew Files, our series about local film industry professionals, today features Emmy-nominated makeup artist Noel Hernandez. First, the composer Gustav Mahler once said, A symphony must be like the world. It must contain everything. Conductor Robert Spano has been bringing us the world throughout 20 years as music director of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. He will conduct music of Mahler tomorrow, Saturday and Sunday, and joins us now via Zoom. Maestro, welcome back to City Lights.
2: Pleasure to be here with you, Lois.
1: Please tell us why you chose Mahler's Symphony Number no. Three for this week's concert? That's an interesting thing
2: for me to think about because it's uh, four years ago now that I announced my departure. COVID added another year to my tenure here with a different title as co-artistic advisor, but. I immediately knew at the end of what I had thought would be three years, I wanted to say Auf Wiedersehen with Mahler's Third Symphony. And it was just an intuitive leap on my part. It just popped into my head, we have to do Mahler three. I don't think I fully understood why. Synchronistically, just a couple months after the announcement and my own private thoughts about Mahler three. I was asked to take over performances in Paris for Edo de Vart. And that was my first time conducting in the Champs Elysees. And that was Mahler's third symphony. And it just seemed affirmation. I'd made the right choice for my last concerts in Atlanta. And now the closer we get to doing those performances, I realized what a perfect vehicle the symphony is for me to express my Gratitude and my joy and my flood of memories of all the beauty we've been able to create here. The symphony is a real celebration of life. The first movement is a, by turns, abysmal chaos and inchoate nature. And then the bringing forth of life and the Dionysian processions in praise of Pan and creation. And then by turns, Mahler says what the flowers tell me The angels tell me, kind tells me. then the last movement that glorious last movement is what love tells me a kind of great chain of being and for me now in a way it's what the aso has told me and shared with me it's just a it's a gift it's a marvelous gift in my life
1: i was amazed to discover just this week that mahler conducted the premiere of his symphony number three on june 9th 1902
2: Isn't that extraordinary to think about?
1: Yeah, that, you know, cosmic whatever that you felt, you didn't know why at first. 120 years to the very day that you will be leading it. The story goes, when conductor Bruno Walter visited Mahler in 1896 at the composer's summer retreat in the Alps, the younger man expressed his awe of the mountain scenery. And Mahler told Walter, you don't have to bother looking at that. I've already composed it. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> or just confident of his art. I think the level of inspiration
2: was so, high and so intense for him, and and I hear it, of course, in his music, that there could be no doubt that the mountains were singing through him.
1: This symphony is the longest of any work in the repertoire. You mentioned the names of the movements. Would you talk a bit about its structure?
2: Well, it's, a, it's an odd structure and various musicologists have argued with each other about how to analyze its construction in one way, it's very clear what Mahler set out to do with the fact that the first movement is, was originally part one in his mind, and then the rest is part two. Part one of uh, the first movement is 35 minutes on its own. And the other movements, with the exception of the last, are all significantly shorter. And the first movement has its own identity as well as being this kind of creation myth, retelling of a creation myth. And the other movements are these wonderful love letters of that chain of being and form a kind of set of five in response to that gargantuan first movement. But on the other hand, you can understand the first movement in many ways as a sonata form, symphonic structure of a first movement, and then the the next two movements as kind of reimaginings of what a scherzo could be. The last three movements come in close succession, and many thinkers have thought of the the beautiful setting of Nietzsche in the O Mensch movement, the fourth movement, and the Knaben-Wunderhorn setting in the angelic fifth movement as a kind of introduction to the much larger finale adagio i know that many critics and musicologists and listeners have responded to the symphony that it's sprawling and and incoherent my experience of it is quite the opposite that it's its grandeur is held together by countless musical features of coherence materials from one movement appear in another and and are transformed or directly quoted. So there's a great deal of dialogue of these movements with each other.
1: You are among the most literary of musicians. I know your mom has referred to you as a biblioholic. Yes, she did. As opposed
2: to a bibliophile, yes. <laughs> I love it.
1: If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. My guest is conductor Robert Spano. Mahler adored literature, poetry. He was a close friend of Thomas Mann, you can tell from his choice of texts, the importance of poetry and literature in his life. And Mahler was famous for including a program or narrative with his symphonies and then getting rid of the extra musical descriptions, just telling folks, ignore that. For this piece, the titles remain, as you mentioned earlier. And the autograph manuscript bears the heading "A Midsummer Noon's Dream. Of those six movements, what do you think we should especially listen out for, for a general listener?
2: Well, that whole complexity of the extra musical and the musical was such a hot topic of the day. And Mahler was of course sort of right in the middle of that controversy. One can reduce it to the the conservative Brahmsians and the progressive Wagnerians in one sense. And Mahler was acutely aware of of the tendency to be categorized or pigeonholed as, as one thing or the other. And of course, Mahler in so many ways lives in both of those camps. And I think that is one of the explanations for his putting the programs out there, taking them back, changing them. I mean, mm-hmm. it was a it's very complicated relationship to the programmatic aspects. And, and because of that, it becomes a question: how important is it for the listener or not mm-hmm. to appreciate the music? And, and because of his own ambivalence around that issue. I think in this case, the literary underpinnings are all the more apparent, given the clear connections to Nietzsche, both the Fröhliche Wissenschaft and also Sprach Zarathustra are clearly fundamental to Mahler's thinking in the generation of this symphony. And then, of course, there's the poetry we know was very close to him relative to this symphony. So there's a there's a Hürdelin poem that he clearly referenced in the letter as being inspirational for the first movement, obviously the Knaben Wunderhorn poetry that's in the symphony. The symphony also has all kinds of musical connections to at least three of the Wunderhorn songs so that he was composing before the symphony and that speak to the extra musical content because there's one called The Earthly Life and one called The heavenly life. And then there's the one, the changeover at spring, which is the death of the cuckoo and the rise of the nightingale. And so all of that is fascinating and interesting. And I think potentially enriching to a listening experience. But on the other hand, I remember as a kid, the Mahler's third was the first Mahler I really latched onto from recordings. Everyone was talking about Mahler, I remember, in the Seventies, and I knew there was something there I wanted to connect with, and I, I would listen to Mahler and feel mystified and lost, <laughs> but I listened to the third over and over and over again, and at some point, it just clicked in, and I had, I felt that I had finally penetrated the, the veil and really felt connected to that music. But I knew very little of any of this programmatic. I wasn't researching the the symphony. I was just listening to it. And so I think, too, that any listener's uh, awareness of, of the extra musical trappings of the symphony is potentially there. And if it's not, that's okay, too, because I think Mahler trusted his music to speak to us more directly as well. And so I I feel that it's up to anyone to, to trust their own interest levels on what they want to find out and how it affects their appreciation of it.
1: Looking back over your tenure here, you have been an avid mentor to rising artists you are responsible for nurturing the careers of numerous celebrated composers now, giving life to new music in a way never before experienced in Atlanta. How many works have you commissioned for the ASO since you arrived?
2: Oh, Lois, that's a hard question. I I don't know the numbers. Somebody knows. Okay. (laughs) Somebody (laughs) kept track. But I know it's got to be. Uh, it, and it gets a little complicated. Was it a world premiere? Was it an American premiere? Was ah. it a performance? But I know that it's been such a rich part of our musical culture, this work of living composers and, and so many of them, that we're—it's it's hundreds of, of pieces that we've performed at this point. I think that... It's so interesting that we talk about masterpieces and we talk about, well, even the word pieces and that we have a canon and we have a core repertoire. And and that is on one hand true, but on the other hand, none of that music is alive unless we re-engage it. And it is a fresh experience. Every time we perform a Beethoven fifth symphony or a Brahms first symphony, that music is vital and alive. And so our tradition is really one that depends on our continual creative engagement. And I think that working with living composers fuels and feeds and informs our relationship to the music of the past in in wonderful ways.
1: And your Atlanta School of Composers will live on thanks to the Antonoris and others who so want your legacy of new music to continue here it's a beautiful legacy ron and susan
2: they just astonished me and it just made my year when they told me how interested they were in creating a fund to perpetuate atlanta's commitment to living composers and to new music nothing nothing could have made me happier.
1: speaking of happy What are some of the more delightful moments as you think back over the past 22 years? Well,
2: actually, Lois, I was writing a letter today to all of our ASO musical family for that very reason, because I find myself flooded with memories. And and I'm noticing that at top of mind, memories are about extraordinary moments of beauty and performances that live in my memory, and that I think were so special. And that's what's been most on my mind. And I, there are so many, but the the ones that leap to mind are maybe some of the most adventurous things we did with our magnificent chorus, and with our other outside collaborators. I'm thinking of the Passions of Bach that we did with Ann Patterson's exquisite sets and and direction. The operatic adventures we had. So many the kinds of productions we were able to do that are one of a kind. The Orfeo we were able to do with Laurie Stallings, moving artists. The Creation Creator that we did of Theophanides that defies description <laughs> i just think those things that that i remember are so special and so unique to what we were able to do in the world and it's um they're just wonderful memories of beauty
1: well i think for those of us who have had the joy of attending your concerts for the past 22 years We, too, are flooded with memories, so many glorious ones. But I think common to all is the life, the vitality, the joy you bring just stepping up onto the podium and turning around. What you bring to music is a gift to us all, and I thank you for it.
2: Oh, thank you, Lewis. I feel like I'm the one who got that gift of life and vitality. And maybe that's why the Mahler feels so right, because it really is a, a symphony that celebrates that.
1: So fitting. At the end of that June 9th performance in 1902, Mahler took 12 curtain calls. I'm going to be counting yours tomorrow. <laughs> I don't think they're gonna let you leave the stage for the night.
2: Well, it's been a great, great, wonderful gift to live with this orchestra and this community for 22 years. I'm full of joy.
1: Doctor, and longtime Atlanta Symphony Music Director Robert Spano. He will conduct Mahler Symphony Number no. 3 tomorrow, Saturday, and Sunday for his final performances with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. More information is on our website, wabe.org. In a moment, our series about local film industry professionals, Film Crew Files, today featuring Emmy-nominated makeup artist Noel Hernandez. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois It's great to have you along. It's time now for our series, Film Crew Files, where we hear from some of the many Atlantans that help keep our city's film industry thriving.
3: My name is Noelle Hernandez. I live in Dunwoody and I am an Emmy nominated Local 798, film and television union makeup artist, and I have been working in the film industry for nine years. I had worked for Sephora for 10 years, and I was ready to leave the company, and an ex-Sephora friend of mine had already uh, gone into film and television makeup. So she told me to get onto Craigslist, look for crew jobs, and I found many makeup jobs, many of which also did not pay or barely paid, and I did as many as I could to gather as much experience and hours so that I could submit all of that to the film and television union for makeup and hair. And that was in a three-year period of time before I finally got in. A typical day on set will involve usually 12 to 14 hours of work if not more sometimes. We're usually coming to set a little bit underslept, but the cool thing about the job is that we really tell a story with each and every character that we work on. So in our day, we have to make sure that each actor is looking like their character, whether it's through the use of appropriating makeup for a certain era or period, or if it's applying prosthetics and or trauma makeup so that the viewer will really get the right impression of what is being told by that character. Putting makeup on any actor involves collaborative conversations and research so by the time they sit in our chair, we are already knowing what this character needs to look like and how they need to present themselves. So I think one of my favorite parts about my job is being able to work creatively in helping that character go on set and really feel the part that they have to play with ease. There are so many things that are hard about the job that we do in makeup Uh, One of them is, on a daily basis, we have to make sure that we are really timely with uh, the makeup. The makeup itself usually takes the the amount of time that we ask, and we can usually do it in that period. But anything can set us back. An actor can be late, or they can have a really bad reaction all of a sudden to makeup. It could be a number of things that set us back. And of course, you never want production waiting on you. Um, You also have to keep the temperature inside the trailer really comfortable and safe and by that i mean keep the voices low keep the trust strong with your actor and yourself and and make sure that this is a safe place for them and that any of the stresses of the day don't come into the trailer and affect you know what we're doing and what they're doing i don't know if i can say if there's really one favorite production i've worked on I can say that when you do things like work on Hunger Games and you get to do really over the top, uh, super exaggerated makeup on people in the Capitol, that was a lot of fun, just really making these grand characters, which you don't get to see too often. Also, a lot of the movies that I've done period makeup on, I've really enjoyed. Uh, Live By Night, Bessie. These are films where you know when you get to do period makeup You're actually on a set that looks exactly like that era. And so that's exciting to be a part of creating a a piece of history. Atlanta, Georgia supports my film industry career by having a world-class film city to offer anybody coming in from L.A., New York, and abroad. Uh, We have world-class studios built here we have really well experienced crew people from all ranks and it's a pleasure for actors to come and film here and we even have the georgia film academy that supports learning and careers in the film and television industry and it's a place where we are now known for the high quality productions that we put out there. So I'm very pleased to be able to work in this industry out of Atlanta. Each project that we work on in the film industry gives us an opportunity to work within basically a film family or a television family where every day we get to work with each other and create. And through our sacrifice, which is a lot, but you know, it, film crews really put out so much of their work, their time, themselves, into the projects that we all work on. And so this industry has positively affected my life by allowing me to work creatively and and to have a family every time I work on a new production. And it's always unique, it's always memorable, and there's always magic in the end. It's what makes it so special.
1: Emmy-nominated Atlanta makeup artist, Noel Hernandez, and our series Film Crew Files. More information about Hernandez is on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. Coming up, the creative behind Game of Shrooms, the international Art Scavenger Hunt, happening this Saturday, June 11th. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzis. Thank you for being here. This Saturday, June 11th, the world's mushroom population will grow thanks to an international art scavenger hunt called Game of Shrooms. The game's design is sweet and simple. Participating artists create mushroom-themed art to hide within their communities and then local art lovers go looking for the hidden art. The artist and co-founder of High Fructose magazine, Daniel Attaboy Seifert, is the creative behind Game of Shrooms, when he recently joined City Light senior producer Kim Drobes via Zoom, he began with how Game of Shrooms came to be.
0: It kind of evolved like most good or, or bad things. Um, hmm. And, uh, you know, I was in the midst of my first ever depression, and I never really hmm. had one before, and it wasn't a sadness. and uh, And it was a total depression, so I started... Uh, painting pieces of cardboard um, and hiding them around uh, with mushroom themes wherever I went. And it was kind of a way to kind of change the narrative of my day, I guess you'd say, and um, create something that was literally a surprise for people when they were looking down. I guess, uh, again, all, all of this is this is in hindsight. But so I started doing that. I did that for a few years. And then I started seeing other artists do it. Um, and then uh, my first impulse was to get defensive, like most artists do. You know? <laughs> and then I said, wait a minute, the whole spirit of this thing is to kind of, I don't know, uplift, uplift people to, ex- to uh, explore uh, art in your community or whatnot. And, and so I started inviting everybody and to do it all on one day. So that's what happened. And it's kind of taken off and it's uh, you'll find artists all over the world from Tasmania to Hong Kong to um, Denver even you know
4: (laughs) I love everything about that beginning there's a lot to unpack there the connection between art and giving back and mental health is huge so you were saying you were at a lower point and just the act of creating the art or Made you feel a little better, or was it more knowing that somebody else's day would change from it?
0: I, maybe it was both. I don't know. I it's above my pay grade, I guess, to, <laughs> to kind of figure out. Um, I I don't know. Uh, I just know that I had to do something that was different, something I had made, maybe in hindsight, maybe something I had a little bit more control over, um, and it was fun. and And the response was fantastic, and people would find it uh, who were looking for it. I'd give them little clues, but then also people didn't know they were playing this game Mm -hmm. would find find the art and now they were playing the game and what's interesting about this event and and even in that time too is it kind of gives people something different to talk about at dinner (laughs) (laughs) something than the same old thing it's like hey you know I found this thing I don't know what it is I'm trying to figure it out so there's some mystery in there some mischief but then also kind of um this kind of wonder that we could find in our own neighborhoods and that's important to me I love when art can change the way you see things every day that you maybe take for granted. I mean, a Campbell soup can from Warhol, that's my favorite sure. part of that. This can be, ha- this can happen for your neighborhood too, or the things around you. You may be living right next to an artist and not even know.
4: And yeah. so why mushrooms?
0: Well, um, I, I again, I'm not exactly sure, but um, I, I do know that my grandmother had a ceramic studio and her Her kitchen, her living room, and her backyard had a little mushroom garden. So it was filled with mushroom art that she made. And I would paint that but then mushrooms in a, another way, they're kind of, um, is ubiquitous a word that I can use? I don't know. I but, think you um, just it, did. Okay. Well, I used it. I don't know if I have <laughs> license, <laughs> but I'm going to use it. And, um, cause it has lots of vowels next to, next to other things that are not vowels. Anyways, uh, mushrooms kind of, uh, one, some people think that they're, they're the biggest organism on the planet. I mean, I'm in no by any means an expert on, on mushrooms, but and they are also interconnected, which is interesting, but they also uh, sprout up and bring life to usually decaying or dead matter too. But on a personal note, they're, they're really easy to paint. No matter what you paint, it kind of looks like a mushroom because they're so varied. Uh, There's so many a variety of mushrooms out there. So it's kind of a, a free form way to make art that's kind of um, that doesn't have many boundaries to it I
4: guess. that's fantastic I did make a little connection in my brain about how mushrooms connect and how mm-hmm. game of shrooms connects a community
0: yeah that is something and again that just evolved I, I wasn't conscious of it when I started and I did not know it was going to become like this worldwide holiday of sorts of art making and what's become kind of some people calling it like interactive giftivism because people are spending a lot of time on these works and and there's artists who are really well known and then there's artists who are there's little children playing this you know and all sorts of people and people who forgot they were artists you know Mm. And, and on the other side there's people collecting art for sometimes for the first time and it's amazing to see what happens because they get to become like you know, people are Santa Claus and the Easter bunny and like the Cupid little naked baby flying around and they get to be everything of all these holidays all at once. And people get kind of permission to collect art and to realize that you don't need to be like this billionaire or millionaire or a hundredaire to buy art. Like there's one collector uh, around here who she buys one piece from an artist that, you know, she, she finds every year. Uh, like a, oh, an additional cool. original piece too. And I don't think she was much of an art collector before. So it's it's interesting how people get empowered that they can buy art that isn't, uh, no offense to Ikea, but isn't just like an Ikea, you know, mass produced thing. But that's something that's somebody, you know, one of a kind thing. And that's the thing about this is it's more focused on one of a kind art. This isn't about commerce or brand. There's no money here. It's mm-hmm. um, people are doing this out of their, you know, their own goodwill and uh, spirit of fun. There may be more art in your area than you realize. And I like that part of it.
4: I like that too. So if you are an artist and you want to participate, what is the process?
0: Well, you can make art that's mushroom themed and you can hide it on June 11th. I've made this map with my friend Jason where people can submit their location and they're linked to their social media and they can leave hints and clues onto where they're gonna be hiding these things. And then on that day they hide they hide the work. What's great about the map is and people know to look in that area that there's a dozen artists say in their area. And most artists they will hide two or three works. That's usually I, I think I say that they should hide a few, but then also go look for a few too, because that's the other part of it, is Santa Claus gets gets to go find their own gifts too, you know. So there's that element to it, too. So we always leave time for to look for art ourselves, too.
4: So that's how an artist gets involved. And then a seeker, that can be anyone, and they go to your interactive map. And you said they don't get very specific about location. But the more I zoom in on this map, I can see for Atlanta that Someone is hiding something in Grant Park, like literally in the park of Grant we Park.
1: Think, we think, and maybe. Yeah, we
4: think, we hope. <laughs> and then there's another little mushroom pin in Cabbage Town and in East Atlanta. So if we're looking through a city park, that's a big area. Tell me more about the hints that some artists choose to leave.
0: Oh, some some are kind of like the Riddler in some, mm-hmm. you know, a Batman movie, but others, they'll put a, a video up or a story on Instagram or a post on, on on Facebook. There've been so many creative ways and the variety of work is so different. Uh, but I have to mention that there's a leave no trace component to this. This is really important. It's a day when nature invades the human space in the form of these mushrooms and the mushroom theme art. Uh, with creativity and humor and mischief and all that. But the idea is also that we're not destroying anything. We're not trampling things. And also art that's hidden, if it's not found, the artist has to go back and, and, and retrieve it, which is important. Uh, my wife's an avid hiker, and it's just, um, it's something we instilled in the game in the second, third year, I think. And people really really have kind of attached themselves to the spirit of that. So, And they've been really great with it. But that's, it's, it's important to me. Yeah. And they've been great. And also, people can hide art in small shops and stores, especially if the weather's bad, you know, if it rains. And a lot of these independent shops, whether they're tattoo shops, independent uh, bookstores, record stores, uh, libraries, sometimes museums get involved, they encourage this, and they'll participate and add to the the hiding. And, you know, it'll be a multi-staged clue system sometimes. So that's been really fun too.
4: So if someone wants to try to get clues and they're on Instagram, is there a hashtag that they should be following?
0: There is a game, a hashtag game of shrooms. It's not the best name in the world, but it works. <laughs> it works for now. I understand, but these things just happen, you know, um, how most of us were born. They just happen. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so you check on that. I also created at shroom drop on there. Uh, which sounds nefarious, but it isn't. And it's just, all it is is me showing previews of art and uh, from all people, children, uh, adults, all different types of folks who are, are playing, have played. And so check that out for examples on how people do this and putting your putting the hashtag on the back of the art or underneath the art, depending on how you make it, if it's a sculpture or something that's needed is, is important so that people can contact you and or let you know that it's been found. That's always helpful. I would say about 90% of the things are found and also uh, the artist gets a word that it's been found. I've made probably 150 so far, probably wow. more. And I'd say a good 90% has been found. Sometimes people find things and they just take it and, then, and they, they love it. And that's, that's part of it too. And that's part of the experience of making it as an artist. You're making it, but you're also gifting it to the world you're putting it out there. And that comes with the idea of, you know, somebody might just, you know, grab it and love it and not tell you about it. And you have to be okay with that. You know, I don't know. The the variety of work has been fantastic. And there've been people like Sid Croft from Sid and Marty Croft.
4: Are you kidding me? Atlanta history, we used to have a Sid and Marty amusement park.
0: Yes, exactly. So he made three three paintings, I think last year, um, to hide. Um, And then you get little children doing it, a town in Germany. They did their own spin on it, which was really interesting. Mushrooms were really important to uh, people in this town and they created, there was a, a dead tree it seemed, and they decorated that tree with all the art. It's a little little different than what we do here, but that's their own way to do it. And they dressed up and they had a big ceremony. It was kind of like Wicker Man probably, but I (laughs) I wasn't there. Uh, But there's all sorts of ways that people have interpreted. That's been interesting to see how it evolves in different places and how people do that. And I'm glad that this is the size it's been and how it's evolved and grown organically, pun always intended, Uh, but it's become this weird, strange holiday. You know, that's, that's guilt-free, commerce-free, religious-free, nationalism-free, yeah, art-making holiday, that it doesn't cost anything, you know? I
4: love it. You know, you know, I appreciate that you said that when an artist lays something down, they have to be okay with the idea that someone might grab it and they might never know, but in a dream bubble, the person who grabs it would somehow let the world know. How did they do that?
0: They can do that on instagram they do it on facebook or sometimes they just message the artist and then the artist updates their clue or their post You know, according to most people do play on Instagram, people have been really great and really excited. And and then they they'll find a piece and then they will play the next year and they'll make a piece too, Uh, which is kind of this interesting thing, you know, so they're making art, they're giving art, but they're, you know, receiving it. So it's kind of a, I don't know. I'm from New York and I'm, you know, part of me was pretty jaded, (laughs) not like New York people are jaded, but this thing makes me cry every year.
4: You created just, like the warmest fuzziest argument yeah. I love it. Really love it It's
0: not good for accounting, but that's the point. I think there's an inherent need for people to to create and I think that when we don't create, we kind of fill this void up by buying things to get that kind of temporary newness or to kind of raise that dopamine level. So I think whether you're making a cake or mowing the lawn in an interesting way, or making a piece of art, I think we have this inherent need to do that. And when we don't, I think there's something lacking in our life. And uh, it, it's, it's something I've kind of discovered while, while doing this.
4: Well, you've really landed on something that is bringing joy literally around the world. So thank you for that. And thank you for taking the time to chat with us about it. While I still have you, I would love to ask you a question or two about High Fructose Magazine. It is one of my favorite art magazines on earth. I know that you created it with your wife, Annie Owens, and it's still going strong after what?
0: 17 years.
4: 17 17 years. years. Oh my gosh. So is curating an art magazine still bringing you joy 17 years later?
0: It depends what day you ask us. Um, It depends with, uh, you know, distribution and paper shortages and things like that and and supply things. But it does. I mean, it's it's strange. Um, It's a wonderful thing. It's hard. We're so close to it. It's like having a baby that we had that we that we, you know, foster. And sometimes we're like, you should go off to college already. (laughs) Get out. <laughs> but for the most part, I mean, it's been fantastic. We had a museum retrospective of the first 10 years of that went to Virginia MoCA and then went to Akron Art Museum and then Crocker Art Museum. And we never could have planned something like that. So that was fantastic. We've always put art from all different spectrums next to each other. Putting something that was in the museum or somebody's backyard or a is a street art or something in a lowbrow gallery or a skate shop and put it right next to each other and, but give it the same kind of respect, but also without the attitude involved with a lot of the art discussions that go on. I, again, these are my thoughts. Annie and I argue about everything and we agree on most things and anything smart I say today probably came from her. <laughs> so, um, you know, we, we live and work together all the, all, all, all the time. So, but uh it's interesting how it's grown and we, and we try to use the medium as much as possible with beautiful paper. Papers. And um, it's interesting how our business model was always about selling magazines, but also, you know, bringing art to people instead of becoming a vehicle for advertising. You know, I don't know if we've ever really figured out all the math involved, but for some reason we just keep on making them and they keep on doing okay and we sell out of them. So that's all we can do. I have
4: probably about 20 of them on display at my home because they are just absolutely gorgeous. I don't have any other magazines out in the house but high fructose I mean it's beautiful
0: that is a compliment you know when we started this we looked at uh you know estate sales they always had national geographic collections mm-hmm. in them and every everyone and we said wow if, if we could be held on to like a national geographic that would be the ultimate compliment you know even if you're not into nature stuff you can't throw out a national geographic right I mean just, right. It's just there's something about it and if we can do that and if you save it like that that's just the, that's the highest compliment for us
1: High Fructose Magazine co-founder and creator of Game of Shrooms, Daniel Attaboy Seifert. The International Day of Art and Seek is this Saturday, June 11th, and more information is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., the curators behind the new Pullman Yards exhibition, Hooked When Want Becomes Need. Plus, our series Speaking of Music features Atlanta indie rockers' solid-state radio. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves, Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Wrights, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at W A B E City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at Lois. R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta.
3: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews
1: with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from W-H-Y-Y and N-P-R.